So I was just fucking out. Oh, the day that we got lost in the woods. For oh like yeah, four hours and had to hitchhike back. Yeah, yeah. because we were gonna go see the the Godzilla vs Kong, and we made it just in time yeah. because of some good Samaritan yeah, on some, his way back some from hero football practice. Saw us stumble out of the woods, and I like was like, "The guys, I gotta stick my thumb out. You know, yeah. we gotta fucking get to this movie theater in time." Yeah, we were we were not the yeah. fucking hitchhiking teens and the candy snatchers. <laughs> Ready to to do it? I think the levels are good. Welcome to Twitch of the Death Nerve, a cult movie podcast that takes a deep dive into a different film each episode. Our wide-ranging discussions will touch on genre, culture, and the history of psychotronic cinema. I'm Charles. I'm Sam. I'm John. And on today's episode, we are once again getting our hands a little dirty. It's been a minute since we drank from the well of reprehensible American sleaze, and friends, we are thirsty. Just the other day, we got together with some of our more jaded, thick-skinned friends and marathoned some of our favorite exploitation films from the 1970s. And so today, we're going to be talking about one of the absolute crown jewels of American exploitation cinema, Gordon Trueblood's 1973 film, The Candy Snatchers. We'll take it. It started as a simple crime, The Candy Snatchers. For them, it was a new beginning. For her, it was the beginning of the end. (laughs) Three losers who wanted to lead the good life. The Candy Snatchers. They do anything to get there. Oh, please don't put me back in the hole. The candy snatchers. They were rough on candy. They were rougher on themselves. Get out of my way! Get out of my Money's way! Get out the root of all happiness. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So before we get into a discussion on the finer details and the more salacious aspects of the candy snatchers, I first kind of wanted to foster a more broad conversation on the exploitation genre as a whole. And I know sometimes it seems like what constitutes an exploitation film is a little nebulous. And there's so many subgenres within it. You got, you know, your black exploitation, your hick exploitation, your sex exploitation. And then also under that umbrella, you have Mondo movies and biker flicks and fucking sex comedies and just like a whole host of weird cult films that fall outside the bounds of good taste. But today we are focusing on a certain subset of exploitation films that are in a way kind of hard to put in a box. So to open up the conversation, I got a question for you guys, and it's a two-parter. So... Firstly, while keeping the candy snatchers and films like it in mind, what would you say makes an exploitation film an exploitation film? And roughly, when did that moniker first come about? So I think what makes an exploitation film an exploitation film, to me, there are kind of two answers. The more technical sort of financial producer brain answer is... Exploitation films, basically, producers would get together and say, okay, what's really popular right now? What bandwagon can we jump on? And how can we make a copy of that for really cheap? 
which is why, as you mentioned, there are all of these subgenres within exploitation film. And I'm sure definitely in the future we'll want to do a black exploitation episode or many because we all love that subgenre and a biker movie and, you know, girl gangs, things like Switchblade Sisters. Love the girl gangs. Always wonderful. But to me, what makes an exploitation movie is all of these kinds of transgressive, like you said, more salacious elements, movies that have, you know, crime and really deplorable, awful people. They're the sorts of movies that just you love them and they they can be really fun and entertaining. But you don't take them home to mom and dad. No, you, you feel kind of gross when you finish watching them. And I think the that sort of very late 60s but definitely early to mid 70s american exploitation films like the candy snatchers and other ones will bring up those are to me like that's the essence of pure exploitation movies and we can talk about like what some of those plot elements are but to answer your second question i don't know when the term was first used because Americans started making exploitation movies in the 30s, often as a way to get around the newly prescribed uh, production code, the Hayes Code, that said, you know, here's a list of all the things you can't do in a movie. So it's kind of like what we talked about in our Mondo, Mondo movie episode, where other filmmakers were like, okay, so if we make this and pretend it's a documentary or pretend it's an educational film, we can show things like non-marital teenage sex and movies like She Should Have Said No and <laughs> Reefer Madness. Yeah, they're pretty yeah. nasty. And well, it, I feel like people have this idea that movies from the 30s and 40s were so quaint. And certainly some of them were, but you also have plenty of like it's the origin of women in prison films is is in the early 30s with people like Barbara Stanwyck. I like how they kind of wear this phony mask of like listen we're doing the ethical thing and tell and warning you about something but you can see right through this mask oh, yeah. and it's like yo come check this out look at what yeah. these guys are doing. But yeah. um according to researchguides.dartmouth.edu <laughs> <laughs> yo, look at you. Thanks Dartmouth. <laughs> The term exploitation film was coined by Variety in 1946. The Variety magazine? Yeah, which was like, I mean, still to this day, oh, it's yeah. like the film, oh, yeah. like tabloid, or not tabloid, but like the business side. Yeah, of it, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is funny because 1946 is also the same year that the term film noir was coined. Oh. So I feel like that sort of late 40s period is when critics and maybe fans started to think about cinema as a whole a little bit more reflectively maybe yeah the war was over <laughs> you know they had nothing else to do now you will follow millicent down the crimson path of immorality she lost not only her honor but her health you will see it all in this no hold barred film expose look man oh man you got it boy oh boy look at that baby Debauchery. You can go and home and eat your stainless friend. Perversion in its extreme. <laughs> Sex madness. Coming soon to this theater. 
And I guess I want to go back to the point that you were making, Sam, about how, yes, there are so many different subgenres, but the movies that we're going to be discussing today, like the Candy Snatchers, are the kernel. Pure filth. They're, they're exactly, when you think of an exploitation film, this is the stuff. Like, this is what it is, you know? And and that feeling that you get after watching them, that kind of unclean. Everything is mean. Yeah. They're they're like, you want to take a shower. But what makes some of them so fucking good and so, like, the reason why I fucking love them so much is because they're all so fun. Yeah. You know? Like, you have a good fucking time hanging out with these absolute dirt balls not all the time no not no, no. Not all the time no 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 no, no. <laughs> not all the time not all the time yeah i mean these movies do tend to have pretty nasty subject material like rape and incest and sexual assault and people just being really horrible to each other but i think also something that we tried to kind of keep in mind and maybe focus on a little bit when we did our marathon and in terms of talking about candy snatchers is most of the movies, at least that I have in mind, they're not made by, you know, auteur directors for lack of a better word. It's not like somebody like John Hayes who made a whole bunch of these movies. Like I think we're more thinking about one-off movies by directors who really didn't work much in Hollywood, but all seem to have this kind of like nasty shared vision of what the world or at least what America was like. Yeah, and I imagine that comes with the territory of trying to break into Hollywood. Or at least just trying to get a film made. Yeah, and just being around like the worst fucking scum of the world. No offense to any Hollywood people listening. I'm sure your films are great. I'm sure you're great and all your friends are great. But like (laughs) the fucking people in that city are are disgusting shark monsters that just want to make a buck off whatever idea or creative thing they can leech onto. And so some of these directors like... True Blood. Yeah, Guerd and True Blood. You can tell that he was someone who was a writer who like wanted to make stuff and was just around the worst fucking people and then and you and it comes through in the script and in the film you can see this like like it's they're not you're having fun watching these fucking bad guys but also it doesn't ever make them out to be in the right like it's like wow these people are fucking de- deplorable yeah even the likable people like one of the characters in this movie who we'll talk about in a minute who seems to be like the sympathetic kidnapper he winds up raping his friend yeah do you think that that yin and yang is what makes these movies so good. The fact that you have that director, it's like, I'm going to make a movie, but he has to deal with this sleazoid producer. He's like, I need tits, I need blood, and I need it in three weeks. Yeah. And I yes. think that's actually where a lot of the magic comes from that, you know. Oh, yeah. totally. Yeah, this like fly by night by the seat of your pants, get this fucking film made, and you need to have this list of shit in there. And he's like, yeah, no problem. I can fucking give you whatever you want. And they're still putting a bit of themselves right, into right. it, too. They want to make their movie. so they... Yeah. Well, I do. I think there's a mix. I mean, I know he's not American, but somebody like Jean Rollin in France wanted to make these really poetic, gorgeous horror movies, but had a producer who came in and said, you need to have X number of sex scenes and X number of nude scenes. 
And so he was forced to kind of work to that like checklist. But somebody like True Blood, I think he was just and he talks about this a little bit in an interview we watched on the the great uh, Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray release of this film. You, you sort of get the sense that he was trying to make a low budget updated film noir movie. And to me, like, I can sort of see the origins there where it's just these sort of awful people out to commit some crime. Because that's, yeah. that's a lot of the, like, Edgar Ulmer, Ulmer's detour. It, the characters are all just terrible. Oh, I, I haven't seen it. I, I, I want to see it so, so bad. I love the one Ulmer movie that we saw in theaters. Oh, I can't remember the title. I, I never can remember it. It's like just... You still need to see Black Cat, too, which is yeah. another totally nasty movie. You know, as much as I love watching movies, I equally love not watching them and just thinking about them and the ones that I haven't seen and being like, oh, I know when I'll watch it. I'll watch this in this month and just kind of it's planting so nice. a little seed. Yeah, I have like certain months where like I assign genres because they just feel like they go with that month. Yeah, more. yeah. Okay, now that we have a bit more context, I have a question I wanted to ask you, John. Okay. And since I've known you for most of my life, the answer I assume you'll give uh, is something that I already know deep in my bones. Okay. Why do you like these nasty fucking exploitation movies so much? I mean, like, what is it about these particular films that you find so alluring? There's, like, multiple reasons. I do like, like, the danger of them. You know, they're, you know, and they have, like, a seediness and an edginess. But I also like that they're, like, garage rock of movies. They are. You know, yeah, yeah, they're just, you don't have that, like, factory sheen that the yeah. studios have that's just like a bunch of people put together with limited resources limited budget and they just threw it together and it feels more human and like i don't scoff at when like the movie has a few bumps you know it's not smoothed over it's just uh raw and real yes yes and you it, can connect with it that way right right and also they're completely unrestrained by what's considered good taste that's why I love them is I, it's it's sort of like what you were saying earlier about how they're gross, but they're fun at the same time. They have a sense of humor. The characters laugh at themselves and at each other, but they also have all these really great social themes. Like in a lot of these movies, people are driven to crime and violence because of the towns and cities that they live in like because of poverty and things like big business sort of corporate exploitation and there's definitely I think a clear connection that you can find in a lot of those movies saying that like the society that we live in is awful and is forcing us to be like this and most of the movies that we're talking about were made while Nixon was president so I mean there you go (laughs) (laughs) Our planet has been through so much this past year. Wars, droughts, impeachments. But we've never lost our sense of what's truly important. The great taste of Charleston Chew. And just like on the surface, that like old 70s look, that old 70s film stock, 70s cars, Uh, 70s fashion. You love to fucking see it. You do. Right. You just get a fucking sense. Like like this movie that we're going to talk about today is the most L.A. fucking movie I've ever seen. 
and like half of the fucking movie you're like not even there. The you're like, wallpaper, the yeah. lamps, the cars, yes, the coats. Yeah, it's like a part of the city that you don't really see, and it's a certain type of person that you don't usually spend an hour and a half with from the top down of all the characters in the film. To go back to what you were saying about how this is garage rock, you're fucking spot on. Like, I'm remembering growing up, my parents took me to concerts all the time, and they took me to see like fucking Pearl Jam. You know, cool. I, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I saw like Godsmack and oh, shit. Wow. Never so mind. Sorry. Go back to Pearl Jam, Jesus. But what I'm saying is, they took me to all these like huge fucking stadium shows and shit. And like, yeah, I had fun. I was happy to go out with my fucking parents. But eventually, when I was, you know, maybe 14 or 15, I went to New York City and I saw a fucking punk show. And I was like, holy shit. What is this? This is different. And I think that that's the same feeling I get with with these exploitation films. Like growing up, I watched, you know, fucking, you know, movies, the Shawshank Redemption and shit. You know, like I I saw movies again. I'm sorry. I know. Hey, not all. Hey, (laughs) but I'll never forget (laughs) when I first saw Shaft. And, like, realized, like, holy shit, there's, like, a fucking hundred of these movies. And then, like, when I started watching Kung Fu flicks, I was like, there's a... There's a whole oh other God. world, or yeah. a whole other worlds, plural. And and watching exploitation films is like going to punk shows. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm here with my fucking people, you Well, know? There's, there's also this, I think, kind of anti-social or at least anti-bourgeois element to a lot of these movies where, like John was saying, they sort of go against what Hollywood or mainstream society tries to package as good taste. And you see, you know, people having sex and drug use and crime and cool cars. And so I think it is that sort of combination of feeling like you're with your people while at the same time, there's like this rebellious element of freedom. Definitely. Like anything goes, yeah. and usually nothing good. But no. like, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a movie. You're having a good fucking time. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of one reason I like them is like they kind of evolved with me because when I watched them as a young kid, it was just like oh, you know, boobs, blood, car chases, kung fu, you know, people squibs. punching each other right. out windows. And then as I get older, old. I'm like, oh hey, the, yo, there is something like underneath there. I'm yeah. Like, oh well. Yeah. Like, it's- th- these aren't just bad guys. There's a reason they're bad guys. You know, yeah. they're they're in a world that's just like grimy. Listen, Chicky, this little blindfold here is the only thing that's keeping you alive. Hmm? Hmm? <laughs> so you figure out whether you want it on or off. Okay? <sighs> Money is the root of all happiness. I hate those old expressions, but it's true. So I think that's a really good setup for our real discussion or our main discussion of the day on 1973's The Candy Snatchers. And I have a really, it's literally, it's a one sentence synopsis that I got off of uh, the Internet Movie Database. Oh, of course. A, a real resource for those of you, uh, <laughs> you know, film, film uh. gumshoes out there. <laughs> 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 all right all right uh the the synopsis is 
A mute autistic boy stumbles upon a teenage girl who has been kidnapped and buried alive by three young psychopathic criminals intent on extorting diamonds from her rich stepfather. Yeah. That's the fucking plot of the movie. And I mean, it sure is. Of course, it's a one sentence plot about a movie that we could talk about for the rest of our fucking lives because there's so many little details in this film that are just fucking nuts and just. I mean, after seeing so many of these movies, to watch another one, because I just saw this for the first time the other day. I know you guys are, are old pros with it. But even seeing so many exploitation films, to watch this and be like, I don't know what the fuck is going to happen next. Oh, like every minute of the movie, the best I don't know what's going to happen next. And when the... Okay, so these guys, they fucking kidnap this girl. Her name's Candy. They're the Candy Snatchers. She's a teenager. She's a, you know, a very... An innocent an teenager. Innocent, pretty young teenager. And then when they leave the ransom message, they bury her alive and they like leave a they they call up her her dad and he's very nonplussed by their threat and immediately goes to see his his mistress and like live about his life. And the whole time that I'm thinking, like, why don't why doesn't this guy give a shit? And the movie doesn't tell you for a while. And I'm just like held in suspense. Like, why the fuck? Does this guy not care about young Candy, you know? Yeah, and we should say, so the kidnappers, just for context, because I'm sure we'll reference them, it's Eddie, who's this guy who kind of, he used to be in the military. You're not totally sure which war, but my guess would be maybe Korea. Is Eddie the Italian guy? Yeah, the big guy who earlier I said is the most sympathetic one, but then rapes his friend Jesse, played by the great Tiffany Bowling, who is the sort of unexpected female leader of the trio. And the third partner is her brother, Alan, who's just like this little scumbag who yeah. boasts about the number of people he's killed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and shouts the number as it goes up when he's killing people. Yeah, every time he kills someone, it's like, like, 14! Uh, 15! 15! 14! <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, also nasty. Nasty. yeah the okay so i have a question for both of you okay and if you don't say what my answer is i will then answer the same question my favorite which is, kind of questions who do you think is the worst person in this film oh <sighs> okay so the answer is most likely... Or like the person you hate the most, I, I guess would be a different, maybe oh, better way. That's to... two different answers. Yeah, okay. Yeah. The person that I hate All right, the most... All right, well, then give me both answers. Is is definitely the young autistic boy's mother. Yeah, that is... I think she's... I was going to say that, too. She's fucking that's terrible. That's what I hate yeah. the worst. So the real heart and soul of this movie and the reason why I think I loved it as much as I did is because the young, mute, autistic boy in it is just... Sean. Oh, Sean. He is so good. And so cute. What a great kid, you know? And his parents are fucking terrible. Especially his mother. Oh, she's she's awful. And constantly, like, tells him she wishes he would go away and never come back and says all this awful shit to him. And beats him. And beats him. And just like humiliates him in front of other people, and 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 when the kidnappers are, he's what like five. He's a little kid. Yeah, and he can obviously communicate he just he can't speak it's so funny seeing or i don't know if funny is the right word but it's so interesting seeing (laughs) the way that the kidnappers are treating candy throughout the film where like 
they're mostly absolutely terrible to her. I mean, bear in mind, the first thing they do is fucking slap her legs around, yank her into a van, and then fucking bury her in a box and in the blindfold dirt. Her. Blindfold her. Yeah. and gag her. And, and the fact that the fucking worst character is this this other kid's mom, the kid who kind of witnesses everything go down from the jump. And tries to help her, but is only five and can't speak yeah. and like doesn't have a lot of strength. He, he goes back to the place where she's buried and he has this like little tiny shovel that a child would bring to the beach. And it's just like, oh, what a good kid, you know? <laughs> and where do you think you're going? You are not getting up until you finish that cereal. And when you finish, you will go to your room and pick up every one of your toys and put them away. And at nine o'clock, I am going to come in and every toy I see, I will break and throw in the garbage. Now, do you understand me? kidnappers despite how like heinous they are have moments of humor you know so like you kind of lighten up with them even when it's like unintentional and by their end but you're just like watching these buffoons screw up their plan and having no idea what to do and they're so convinced that like here's a perfect plan there's no way this won't work yeah and they're also i think to your point moments where they feel very human and i think in a lot of crime films the criminals are meant to be kind of monstrous or yeah and and i think that's what makes a lot of these exploitation films so interesting is that the characters they choose to focus on are not hollywood characters they're the fucking nasty kidnappers they're they're the, they're the killers yeah and they're usually all these kind of like blue collar poor people or people who come from poor backgrounds they just feel more real yeah for sure and okay so i i want to go back to what their plan is because like you were saying they thought that it was a perfect crime no way this could possibly go wrong yeah and (laughs) and honestly when you think about their plan it's pretty good it's it's not a it's not a terrible plan they got unfortunately they didn't do their fucking homework so their plan was to kidnap young Candy, bury her alive, send the ransom message to her father, who is the manager of a diamond store, some jewelry store. Uh, and basically The most say, like German expressionistic looking jewelry store oh ever. It's, it it's, takes place in a black box. And like if there was a spiral staircase made out of twisted bone teeth, that would check out. <laughs> yeah. There wasn't. But anyway, it turns out that... Candy is his stepdaughter, and he married into the family because when she turns 21, she will be bequeathed with $2 million from a trust fund. And he didn't have a plan. He, he's married to this alcoholic woman who he enables by feeding her alcohol and throughout the film. And who seems to be significantly older than him. Much older than him. And, and this is Candy's mother we're talking yes, about. Yes, Candy's mother. And the way that he brings her alcohol constantly and is so he's nice to her, but you know it's a ruse. Well, he, he's nice to her, but he keeps her basically sedated. Yeah. And the point is, I think what he's trying to do is kill her slowly over time with alcohol. He doesn't have a plan for candy yet, but that's why these three bumbling fucking idiot criminals kidnapping her and threatening to kill her is exactly 
what he wants. And he's and when he finds out they're gonna kill her, he's elated. He's it's elated. like he's having the best day ever. Now all he has to do is get rid of this fucking poor drunk old lady, and he's in the money. Well, she's already an alcoholic. If her daughter gets murdered by psycho kidnappers, that's really gonna push her off the edge. So yeah. he's in the he's in the fast mm. lane now. Yeah. And you brought this up a minute ago, but I really do think one of my favorite things about this film is as it unfolds, like, yes, there is that great element you get with so many exploitation movies where, like you said, you literally don't know what's going to happen next. And you're just like, where is this? Where could this possibly be going? Yeah. But there's also that contrast in relationships and the ways that people treat each other that also go outside sort of conventional expectations. Because it's like you, in any normal crime kidnapping film, you would think, okay, the kidnappers are going to be the worst people in it. But it's like everyone is just so awful to each other. Yeah, and there's one scene in the middle of the film where the the young boy, Sean, his parents take him to like, a psychiatrist or, or well, no, something. They, so or they it's... take him. So Sean's father is up for a potential promotion. I'm not sure what he does. I think he might be some kind of salesman, but he's trying to get his own territory. And so they're going out to dinner with his boss to impress his boss so that he can get this promotion. Yeah. Well, come on. Cat got your tongue? Come on, speak. Come on. He doesn't, um, talk. Uh, talk, yes. What do you mean he doesn't talk? All kids talk. Not ours. There's, um, some sort of problem. Problem? You hear that, Mother? Kid doesn't talk. Who ever heard of a kid who doesn't talk? I was all under the impression that that Sean does something there because they're really mad at him when they leave. And I have this feeling that like he, he pulled some like weird kid shit while he was there. I could be misreading that scene. But, but like, yeah, my assumption was just that the parents were awful and the boss is awful because there's this amazing scene where Sean is sitting on the boss's lap yeah. and the boss is trying to get him to talk. And he find the parents sort of guiltily admit like he doesn't talk. He's like, what do you mean he doesn't talk? And he laughs for like 10 minutes right in this kid's face. <laughs> the editing is brilliant. Yeah. What's amazing is that you say 10 minutes. It obviously wasn't longer than 10 seconds, but that's exactly it how it felt. Like yeah. Because the way they cut to this poor kid sitting on the lap while he's <laughs> laughing, it's like, I mean, I don't know if you know anything about young children that have special needs, but when you fucking sit them on your lap and you start laughing as loud as you can in their faces, they don't. A lot of them don't love that. I feel like any normal, non-special needs, or I shouldn't say normal, a neurotypical kid would also not enjoy a stranger like menacingly la and it's not like a friendly laugh it, it's like a mean laugh even as an adult when i go to the mall and sit on santa's lap and he laughs like it's still <laughs> would you weird, um, would you obnoxious. much rather him say naughty <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I know uh, this episode's coming out in January, but at the end of our marathon, we we didn't get around to watching one of our favorite Christmas movies. <laughs> Silent Night, Deadly Night. And we watched it because it, it's one of those ones that feels like an exploitation film. Yeah. and Definitely. And again, like like what I was saying earlier about how these movies follow characters that are just so reprehensible. And usually films don't spend that much time with them. They're ones that are just kind of like peppered in to give the heroes more color. Like Silent Night, Deadly Night, you're hanging out with this fucking twisted, mind-fucked... But you feel bad. You feel for bad. Him. Of course you do, because you understand why he's killing all these people. It doesn't give you any added pleasure to see innocent people get killed. I mean, it, it, it doesn't give everyone. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's really interesting, and I'm glad that you brought this up. What's neat about the slasher film? It's the only exploitation genre that started in the exploitation world and the mainstream stole. Which is wild. Yeah. Like it, it blows my mind. And you can easily find a list of this online if you're looking at all of the many different exploitation subgenres. But it's like I just don't always think of slasher movies as exploitation films, but that's definitely where they started. And I think a lot of the nastier ones totally are. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The yeah, best yeah. ones. Even yes. even like the Friday the thirteenth movies, which are the most popular ones, and you, you don't really kind of put them in that like zone. But the first like four or five look like yeah, closer to Forty Second Street movies than I mean the fourth one has Donald Pleasant's terrorizing no, children. Friday but, the thirteenth. Oh, oh my God. Jason mother is talking to and you. And I think that you're you're spot on with that. That the Friday the 13th series, at least the first chunk of them, they're exploitation films. Like they exist in order to show you all of the parts from like, you know, your more classier like slasher films like your uh, your psychos or your right. halloweens. And they're just there to give you the goods. You know, sprinkle in some titties. They know what you want. They know what you want. And that's why I think the fucking the granddaddy of those movies is pieces pieces is 100 percent a fucking it is exploitation, an exploitation film. movie it's magical well, it is i mean in a sense they're all exploitation movies in a way like yeah i mean technically night of the living dead is an exploitation right. movie because all to be an exploitation movie is you're a movie that's exploiting elements to get your audience yeah so even in a sense like mainstream hollywood movies can be exploitation movies i just think as the years went on, we kind of molted them yeah. into these 70s drive-in. And and that's why I think that The Candy Snatchers is such a perfect example of the genre as a broad picture. Or as like, it's not, it doesn't nicely fall into any one subgenre. It's just an exploitation film. And yes. what gives it that quality, I think, is because it's one of those movies that was ripped from the headlines it was based on this actual kidnapping that took place in florida and i want to say like fucking 1967 1968 or something and and it was a pretty shocking ordeal where this this girl a student at emory college her name was barbara mackle or barbara mackey mackle mackle she was kidnapped and buried alive and like put in this fucking plywood box and they gave her food, they gave her water and like pipes for air, which is exactly what the characters in the Candy Snatchers do in the first five fucking minutes of the movie. Well, what's really funny is she had Hong Kong flu, so she was in a hotel to stay away from like the student body 
and the kidnappers showed up dressed up as police and like said Whoa. that like her dad or somebody was involved in a traffic accident and they needed to take her and and like she was with her mom they chloroformed her mom and they Holy shit. yeah they took her away and it was it was a uh, it was two people instead of three but it was a, a guy and a and a girl and they were both dressed up as cops and oh wow. man it was, it was so wild and it, it was funny they had it all set up they had the map to like drop the ransom off and everything like that and then I forget what went wrong, but they split up and they found them like apart and they eventually rescued the girl. But she was in there for three days. Yeah. And the director of the Candy Snatchers basically just took that idea and then asked the question, what if the kidnappers didn't fucking check their math and didn't realize that? And what if the person being called for the ransom just didn't give a shit? Yeah. And wanted and wanted them to kill her so that way he could get some money. It's and and the theme to this movie, you were singing it at the very start of the show, and I'm sure it's <laughs> it's so good. It is. It's just money is the root of all happiness. It's just like fucking folk song. And so many of these exploitation movies have great little oh, yeah. title card and folk songs. That's honestly one of my favorite kind of B movie tropes is when this like clearly low budget movie has its own theme song like oh, the fucking yeah. mutilator with the yeah. fall break yeah yeah uh, psychomania's got one oh and psychomania has that great song about how the sound of holy revving fills the air that they sing in the middle of the movie god but bless biker films this one even has that great it's not like a full song but they encounter this character who works in a hospital morgue because they they're like not tough enough or sadistic enough to actually cut Candy's ear off. Like, yeah, they need they need to send a message to her father and that like, gonna, hey, we're serious. Yeah, we're gonna cut off her ear. You ignored our note, but we're gonna keep upping the ante if you don't give us what we want. Yeah, they're gonna go the old Vincent Van Gogh route, but uh, they chicken out the last minute. Well, yeah, they so couldn't Van Gogh there. <laughs> <laughs> they were not all ears <laughs> all right all right all right guys i'm okay. gonna fucking quit the goddamn wait so anyway they go to this hospital morgue because jesse tiffany bowling's character knows a guy who works there and they're trying to get him to give them an ear like to cut an ear off one of the hospital corpses and he's bargaining with them, but the whole exchange takes place via song, and it's just the greatest. Oh, it's such a wonderful scene. <laughs> what in the hell you want a year for? Oh, come on, Charlie. You're going to give it to us or not? What's it worth to you? $10. $10? At 10 o'clock, I sold a finger for 35 Ain't no way, man. Ain't no way. No way, baby. No, 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 no. No way, no, 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 no way, baby, ain't no way, baby. Okay, 35. I can't see it, honey, it's got to be worth more, more than a finger. What's a little finger, baby? 40. Uh, can't see it, Jesse, Jesse, you jiving, you got to be jiving me. Oh, Charlie, come I can't, on. I can't, I can't do it. 50. Yeah, okay. The best of these movies, and the Candy Snatchers is certainly among them, 
they just have all of these little moments where every single scene has some kind of hook or or just has something that makes it special yeah right right right. and even the dialogue it's you know everything it's like peppered with these little things that just like make you like smirk and it's just joyful yeah it's it's hard not to have a fucking shit-eating grin on your face for like a good five minutes straight while watching this and then something will happen just to wipe it right off your stupid smug fucking face yeah yeah it, it definitely has tonal whiplash which is i appreciate which is our favorite yeah that's that should be the name of our fucking show tonal whiplash <laughs> <Should>. <laughs> uh there's also speaking of of this there's that great scene where so ben piazza plays the stepfather and He's so good in this. He oh, has yeah. this like these like cold fish eyes, this like deadpan face. He's in a couple like 70s new Hollywood movies and in some TV. But there's this amazing scene where he thinks like, okay, I've got this in the bag. I'm finally getting everything I want. And his mistress who so normally his routine is he goes home after work. He gets his wife super drunk and then just goes out and spends the whole night with his mistress, who I think he also works with. Yes, it's yeah, like a yeah, secretary. Yeah, yeah. but he's she constantly seems... slipping her jewelry from the store. But and I think you get the sense by like halfway through the movie that that's the only reason she's interested in him. Yeah, and she seems super bored by him. And yeah. There's I this... mean, and he looks like fucking Dave Foley from the Kids in the Hall, but like suck evil. out, yeah, the evil Dave Foley, you know, the shitty alternate universe. He's the guy who <laughs> uh, pays Walter Matthau to coach the Bad News Bears. Yeah, it took, yeah, it took me so long to recognize him because he's bald in that movie. I love how the Bad News Bears is like this anchor in time for you, I... and sometimes we'll be watching a movie and you'd be like, "Oh yeah, Bad News Bears" or something. I love that. It, <laughs> the most fucked up what was when we were watching Shogun Assassin. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great movie it played all the time and that's a movie that like i mean it was a like a studio movie but it has that like lo-fi exploitation movie feel like not in the not in like the plot it or does. the tone but yeah. it's like it's it looks cheaper because it's just about a little league team you know it's not like when you watch sports movies growing up with fucking where it's like they're high stakes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like glossy and everything. And like, this is no, this is just like grounded, like the lives of these like 12 kids. And it's like fucking great. Hell yeah. Let me finish my story. Sorry, Sorry. 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 So Ben Piazza is with his mistress and he's already sort of sold her on this. Well, He's told her she hasn't really agreed, but he said, like, we're going to leave. We're going to go to South America. We're going to live there. We're never coming back. And she's just like, "Uh uh-huh, whatever. And this one particular night, like towards the end of the film, she says, oh, hey, isn't it time for you to go home? Because his routine is he goes home at the end of the night. So when his wife wakes up hungover, he's there in the morning. And... He's like, I'm never going home. What do you think about that? And then the scene cuts. And in the next scene, he's like going back to his own house yeah, in the middle of the, the night door. looking disgruntled. Yeah. With the tail between his legs. Yes. But I just love those sort of touches yeah. where people are nasty to each other at every opportunity. <laughs> there are moments in the film that that take that concept and that idea 
a little bit too far, which is what makes them dangerous, nasty fucking it's, exploitation They wouldn't be films. exploitation movies otherwise. No, no. If they weren't there to make you feel upset in some way. And and the scene in the middle of the film. So the nicest of the kidnappers, like you were saying. Eddie. Eddie. He doesn't want them to hurt Candy. And he's kind of protecting her throughout the film and keeping her from getting killed. And he's going out on a limb in all these instances to get the diamonds and get the fucking job over with. And, and he's taking so all these. So she can just go home. So she can yeah. go home. And you can tell that he's getting his own weird kidnapper brand of Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, reverse Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, where he's like, I don't think we should be doing this, but I need to get my money. And he has this dream of opening up a bar and being his own boss. And you can tell this is a guy who's been shit on his whole fucking life. And now he's doing this like nasty job, but like doesn't want it to be as nasty as possible. He has that great monologue about how he just followed orders in the military and followed orders at his factory job. And like he just it's broken him and he just can't do it again. And that's why he needs this money. And and what's great about it, too, is like the stepfather. He wants to go to like Rio or whatever and live it up and everything. All this guy wants is like I think it was like a bar or bowling oh, alley. Yeah, he, he just wants both. to be on like even ground. You know what I mean? He doesn't yeah. want to be like some multimillionaire. Even Tiffany Bowling's character is talking about like how she's going to live in a penthouse in New York. And this guy's just like, Jesus, I just want to have like my little piece of the pie. You know, I just want. Yeah. And, and, and you and feel bad for him. You do feel bad for him. And this very same guy rapes Tiffany Bowling about three, a little about three quarters of the way through the film in a scene that's almost meant to be like, look at her. She's getting her just desserts. But it's like. It's like, oh, there, no. The first time I saw this movie, I thought this movie was going to go in another direction where I thought Candy was going to start like negotiating and, or well, play, and playing, playing them against yeah, each other. The yes. I thought he, she was going to like play his strings and like that was going to be, you her, know, I, which I, kinda, is I like that it didn't do that. Yeah, I, I like, I like how and that. like I had one scene of it because that definitely like her planting that scene in his mind is what led up to that. She's yeah. like, oh. She's a girl. It sounds like she's the boss of you two big men. And it's like, that's like, uh, yeah, made some, you know, hit a switch in his mind. But I feel like even Jesse has this great line where she's like starting to have kind of a little bit of a breakdown. And she says that part of why she wants the money is because her whole life survival has depended on just her being willing to have sex with anybody who wants to fuck her and she doesn't want to do that anymore and right after she gives that speech is when he rapes her so it's it's yeah. extra like oh it's so yeah <laughs> the, the movie the way that it does that it like fucks with you it it makes you hate them and then feel absolute pity for them and then hate them again in a different way and it's just I feel like the only one you don't really like or pity is her brother, uh, who's just awful. Yeah, yeah he, he is. And, and it gets you to think, like, what was their family situation like? Obviously, to produce awful. these two fucking kids. Yeah. Uh, Mom and dad had to be a piece of work. Uh, oh maybe they were the same as Sean's parents. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All the parents in this movie are awful. Like, even Candy's mom hasn't seen Candy in days and has no idea she's missing because the husband just says to her, 
oh, Candy stopped in earlier, but you were napping. Candy called earlier and you didn't. So it's like she clearly just is totally checked out. She's checked out. In her own miserable world. And I think we watched a couple of these movies where the rich housewife character has a similar vibe where they're just sort of prisoners of their own comfort and success and they're lonely and they live in these big houses but like no one actually loves them like bonnie's kids the the wife is the same way yeah and what was that one leonard cohen film that has yafit kato in it it's like a home invasion movie larry cohen oh my gosh hang on no, no, keep it. Oh Come on. Everybody knows <laughs> that you just got the names wrong. Everybody knows. <laughs> You're thinking of Bone, which is a Bone. fantastic Bone, movie. Bone is incredible. So Bone's a movie that's just like what you just described, where there are these just reprehensible, rich fucking characters, and this home invasion happens in a way that just loosens them up a little bit. And gives them a better understanding of what they got. And also what and, the world is. And what is. the world is like outside of their fucking rich, you know, Hollywood bubble. And that's a theme that does come up in a lot of these exploitation so films. So many of them. And like I was saying earlier, I think it's because that they're made by these people who only, like, made a movie or never made a movie. But have been in the system in one way or another, in the Hollywood system. And they're already fucking jaded by the time they're making their first and only film. I mean, now that we're talking about it, I I feel like some of it is in a broader social sense. They've all sort of tapped into this thing. But I think a lot of it is definitely that. Like trying to make collaborative art in this system that's fundamentally exploitative. It shows up in so many of these films. But... It's also making me think now that we're talking about it that so many of them, especially a lot of the ones we've watched recently, have to do with these kind of domestic disruptions. Either people are kidnapped out of their homes or there's a home invasion or there's some sort of crime at home. It's like these people making these exploitation films come from families and and they know what it's like to grow up with a family and i'm putting family in quotes <laughs> yeah. and and then the the thing that they imagine as their escape their break away from their family is hollywood and and then when you get there then they're exploited they're exploited by the system and you hear about it constantly happening fucking today with any single writer working on something i don't know if you know people that are in the industry I mean, I got a couple of friends and it just seems like the fucking worst. And your boss is somebody who knows nothing about the art form whatsoever, which and has who doesn't to be care. the Yeah, that has to be the most difficult part. Is yeah. Like, and, and that just shows in these movies. And I think that's why I, I wanted to kind of end the show with this this third discussion on how these films are so often dismissed by critics and they're dismissed by people who have i don't know a critical sway in the world and i mean sometimes they like to watch them and you know be like to have some kind of knowledge of them because quentin tarantino fucking references them in his oscar winning you know whatever movies but it's not fair 
Like these movies are fucking important and they're and they're good. I mean, they're <laughs> they're fun to watch. And they're good. They're good. Yeah. Depends so, on them. You know? Yeah. There's a plenty of there's plenty of crap. And some of the ones that are like not well made are still good in a in a in a not in that like fucking awful so bad it's good way that's like huge now. But no. but there's still like the 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 lack of like I don't want to say uh, the lack of skill kind of adds to like the grodiness. But yeah, the best ones are made by people who knew what they were doing. But to go to answer your question, I see where you're going. But I kind of like the fact that like the mainstream kind of frowns on them. I think it adds to that like danger. I would agree with that. I, on one hand, I get it. If you're somebody who likes more mainstream horror movies or genre movies that just feel fun and that you could put on with your friends, your you know your Friday the Thirteenth, you're having a good time. And these are not good time movies at all. I mean, like Centerfold Girls, which one day I'm going to insist we do an episode on, which is way more extreme than Candy Snatchers. It, it's basically kind of an anthology film about this serial killer played by the great Andrew Prine, who is obsessed with murdering Centerfold Girls in this particular calendar he has. And he goes through systematically month by month killing these models. And so the different three parts of the film show those stories. And like in Candy Snatchers, it's not just like this one maniacal serial killer against this woman. It's like in each of the stories, the woman is also up against all these other terrible people like rapists and crazy hippies and... So I get why a film like that and like some of the other ones we've mentioned and definitely Candy Snatchers, they're not accessible. And to John's point, I think that's what makes them feel so special is something that we've brought up on many episodes before. It's like when you meet other people who like these movies, it feels like you all have some sort of secret club membership. Or at least you have a secret you know yes. you have a secret but to add to that think about these movies in their time because these movies were made right after the manson murders during watergate during yeah. the kent state shootings yeah and during the economic crash that occurred in yeah the 70s. so like it made them even more like i'm not sure i want to like focus on this right now while i'm trying to get drunk at the drive-in Yes, but the thing that I find frustrating, and this I think sort of gets to your question, is when there are magazines or online sites that claim to focus on cult movies that want to go outside of just sort of the more mainstream acceptable horror films, when they have to start a review with like, be forewarned, this movie has sexual violence, it has misogyny, it has racism. It's like, it's a fucking exploitation movie from the 70s. Of course it has all those things. Like, acting like here's this crazy outlier that I found that's so offensive. It's like there are hundreds of these movies made in one decade. And if you don't like them, that's totally fine. But I think to claim that you like cult movies and you want to write about them or talk about them I think you have to have some baseline understanding of what the genre was in the 60s and 70s and where all of your beloved horror movies came from like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 
came out of this system. It's a nasty movie. It's not like, do, do you know what I'm trying I, to say? I, I absolutely oh, do. Add, add the fact that it's kind of fucking spoilery when you do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, like those filthy elements, when they come out of left field, they punch you in the face harder. Yeah. And it's just like, dude, don't say that. Yeah. And, and part of the reason why I I love these movies is because I don't know what the fuck is going to happen next in them. And we were having a discussion the other day, Sam, about sexual violence in film. And, and I was trying to make the point that the best times or the best kind of movies that deal with it are the ones where the actual act, the actual rape never occurs. But over the course of the film, it feels like it did. You feel like you were violated, like something happened and you need to go home and sit by yourself for a minute. And the movie didn't even show it to you. And it's the same in fucking slasher flicks when they don't show you someone's throat gets slit. But your hand goes right to your neck and you feel it. And that's just a testament to great filmmaking. And these movies, some of them are great films. I mean, but also to be fair, most of the movies we're talking about do show the yeah. rapes. The, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair. Yeah. But you know what's funny? The scenes that really get me the most are the scenes like before it happens. Those like yep. when the home intruders walk into the house and nothing's happened yet, but you just have yeah, that like waiting the dread of anticipation. Yes, that Ooh. subliminal violence and like you know something bad is just Oh for sure. It, that always hits me harder than the actual acts. And on the flip side of that, the things that hit me just as hard are uh, it's this happens very rarely in these films, but on occasion after something terrible happens in these movies, they don't just cut to a different scene. They stay with the victim and they show you what this person now has to go through. What the fuck is that movie we watched? We had an X-Fest uh, last year where all of our friends, it was actually really fun. Everyone picked out a mystery movie from, and a was, from a different subgenre. From a different subgenre. So, like, I think I had the black exploitation film. John, you did some crazy war flick at the uh, end. No, no, it was it was uh, War Dogs, this Swedish uh, movie that Universal Soldier ripped off. It's uh, incredible. It was, it was wild. But one of our friends, Rob from the Evil Eye podcast, we gave him. We're like, hey, listen, we want you just to sh- play the nastiest fucking movie you can. Yeah, he asked permission. I was like, oh, you're asking me? Like, yes, of course. Yeah, <laughs> he should have been asking me because I. Because uh, you're I, the baby. I'm the baby. <laughs> and you were you no go on <laughs> well what were you gonna say uh, well okay gonna, you yeah, know you what i'm about intru- you gotta introduce the movie before i can tell the story about our experience with the movie before this time well i'm a little nervous to introduce the movie john this is this is one of the most reprehensible films i've ever seen and the reason why is because it doesn't just show an assault and then move on it stays with the character as she goes to the police and then gets a fucking... We need to say what the movie is. Uh, you want really me to say it? It's called Act of Vengeance. It's also called Rape Squad, which is clearly the better title. Yeah, Rape Squad is the title of this film. Which like puts a different picture in my head about what the movie is about. It sounds like a like if like the Dirty Dozen was all Telly Savalas' character. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Uh, we also haven't said that 
rape revenge is a huge subgenre within yeah. exploitation. Yeah, it's, Thriller, it's such a, such a huge subgenre that sometimes it's just like a scene in the middle of one of these exploitation films. They just have like a little rape revenge subplot that happens. Just to, you know, keep the fucking nastiness train. But for some of them, it's the, the whole rails. damn movie, and that's Rape Squad. Yeah. And, and the worst part, like for me watching it, it wasn't the actual rape. It was afterwards. Which talking is to pretty the, brutal. It's brutal. It absolutely is. And it's when she has to go to the police afterwards. And then and then gets the the like kit. The like the the, the rape, rape kit. The rape kit. And and the doctors are just like so awful. The police are so awful that she like she has to live this whole thing again. And that's just it's so they they interrogate her like she's the suspect. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's that, true to life. In 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 the room, she's she's doing like right at the detective's desk, and there's like twenty other cops at their desks just listening in, like trying to get these salacious details of it's, this assault. It's, it's, it's so disgusting. Gross. So John. Uh, so oh, but we haven't said the best part. The best. Part. <laughs> <That's> be- <laughs> okay, <laughs> my words. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So, Rape Squad. The the more general plot is the woman that Charles mentioned is the protagonist. She's raped in this awful scene, and then has another awful scene where she reports the rape. And a big part of the plot is that the police are just not fucking helpful and. They sort of they have these awful lines that are totally true to life where they're just like people are raped all the time. How how do you expect us to solve these crimes? Were you wearing that? Yeah. Is it it. did you have too much to drink, which shows up in a lot of these movies. But she encounters these other women who are also raped and the detail that they all are kind of horrified by is the rapist wants them to <laughs> wants them to hum <laughs> jingle bells. What did you say? I'm sorry. You were laughing. You were laughing, Sam. So I, I couldn't dem- catch. Times can we get canceled? It's, it's dem- the first season. It's demented. He makes them hum a bar of jingle bells. I'm gonna need about three or four bars of jingle bells. So this was on Netflix a million years ago, which is insane. And I put it on, and by the time we got to the second, hang on, John, you came over my house. <laughs> You came into uh, into my my I was living with my parents at the time. You came over to my parents' house and you said, "Hey, you want to watch a movie with your old pal John?" <laughs> I was it's browsing. It's a Christmas movie. <laughs> I, I hadn't seen it yet, so I didn't know what was coming. We just were looking for a nice '70s movie. It was called Rape Squad, John. <laughs> um, Wait, was it on Netflix as Rape Squad? Yes, it was. Wow. It, so, all right. So it was it was on as Act of Vengeance, but you know how it has like the poster on the poster was Rape Squad. So like they were trying to say <laughs> like we're playing Act of Vengeance, but they were trying to be like, oh hey, if you go over here, you can get a movie called Rape Squad. That I know. Like I mean, I wasn't there when they came up with that, but I know that's what they were doing. They were trying to get that title. So so. Well, anyway, we watched the first assault, and you're like, this is awful. And then, like, by the time the second one came in, you're like, this is all this movie is. Turn it off. And you made me turn it off. I wasn't. You. Yeah, I wasn't you, in the mood. I don't. I, was, I don't you were. Watch OK. Shit. I don't think you have to defend not wanting to watch a rape revenge. movie. No, these movies are fucking dangerous. These movies are fucking insane. And they're movies that when you watch them, like we were saying on our Faces of Death episode, can you unsee them? 
can you ever get them out of your heads? Are they going to stick with you? Are they going to fucking leave a mark? And I mean, yeah, they're just movies. So the real answer to that question is probably, nah, you'll be fine. But I mean, sometimes. Well, okay. And in defense of some of these movies, it's funny, but when we were doing our little marathon, our friend Josh made a comment to me like, oh, I didn't realize how many of these have this kind of weird feminist subtext about how the world is an awful place, especially for women, and everyone is kind of out to take advantage of you. I was like, yeah, it's not... These movies don't by any means side with the rapists or the, you know, the sort of creepy people trying to take advantage. It's just often everyone in these movies is trying to take advantage of someone in some way. Yeah, and... And they would be more lighthearted and make jokes about it if they weren't taking it like serious where like these people are bad. Like Torso, everybody is a fucking like... They're all terrible. They're all... Even the female characters. Yeah, but like there's a scene where like they show up in this small town and all these like townsfolk non-characters are just leering. It's just like cuts to all these guys is like, oh, wow, look at that. I want that one, you know? Yeah. And... and... You're abs- and you guys are both so right. These movies, they aren't just collections of scenes that that give you the male gaze, or they're not just collections of scenes that are meant to just get us some kind of rise out of you. They're made with intent at times that goes well beyond being known as exploitation films, but that's what they are. And and the combination of those elements where you're now thinking about gender politics and politics and the fucking crushing feelings that being alive in, especially the American ones, in capitalism give you. And then at the same time, this fucking car just exploded. And look, so no awesome. one's wearing any clothes. What are they doing? You know, it's they're such cool fucking movies. And they give you food for thought if you're down to think. One we watched I had never seen before was Little Miss Innocence. Which, which was, was which, so fun. Yeah. yeah. But who recommended that to us? Uh, my friend Brandon from Vinegar Syndrome. So thank you, Brandon. Yeah. Hell yeah. Good fucking suggestion. But what's interesting about that is it kind of flips where like it's about two girls who like take advantage of this guy. But it feels like what you would hear in locker rooms where like two dudes take advantage of a girl where like yes. they're like it, they're doing this like fuck them and chuck them they try trying, to fuck him to death yeah and they're trying to exploit him for all his worth and trying to get as much sex as they can and just get rid of him and it's just like wow this was like a gender reversal in yeah. this kind of way. and it was like wow and it this just, is it's, it's totally it's, different it's there just to highlight the absurdity of that mentality yeah, and that yeah. line of thinking totally. of people as objects uh, and what makes this culture think of people as objects is ingrained early on when you have to fucking go to work, when you're in the military, when you're in fucking school, and the way people that fucking just treat you throughout these things that you have no say in, that there's no... And yet, these movies highlight that aspect, and sometimes they have a little bit of fun showing you the fucking nastiness of it. Totally, and I think that's why I 
loved them so quickly or fell in love with them so quickly as a teenager when I first started watching them is they're such a far cry from mainstream Hollywood movies, especially in the portrayals of women. Because like, yes, people do get raped and assaulted and killed, but women aren't these, I mean, I guess occasionally they are, but for the most part, women aren't these kind of weak, delicate victim characters. They are also rapists and murderers and bank robbers and... Schemers. Yes, and truck stop... Uh, (laughs) truck stop impresarios yeah truck stop women was one of my favorite movies you watched in that marathon well don't forget so good one of the one of like the key like myth figures of 70s exploitations fucking ilza oh yeah who came back in three different time periods to fucking torture people and and, yeah rule i'm sorry to tell you but at some point we have to do a nazi exploitation episode You may find it difficult to believe that this motion picture is true. You may find it incredible that two young American women would volunteer to throw themselves into the unspeakable indignities and horrible humiliations of a Nazi love camp in order to serve their country. Speaking of which, I I feel like we need to talk about Tiffany Bowling. We do. Who is absolutely phenomenal in this movie. And she's also in other movies we've mentioned, like Bonnie's Kids and Centerfold Girls. Kingdom of the Spiders. Oh, yeah. And, of course, Wicked Wicked. What an interesting niche to find yourself in, where you're just in these exploitation films. Yeah. In this little time where you kind of were the, maybe not the queen of these movies, but well, she worked royalty. with Arthur Marks a lot. Arthur Marks, um, he produced Centerfold Girls and yeah. bon- and he directed Bonnie's Kids, and I think he produced uh, Candy Snatchers. Okay, yes. that makes sense. I remember th- there was the same kind the, of yeah like, general title. film release. Or yeah, something. the title card was the same one, but before all the films. And uh, yeah, she's just this gorgeous pinup girl that ends up in these like seedy exploitation movies, and and I've- she always has such interesting roles. I was thinking about this when we were watching it again last night. I mean, I've seen Centerfold Girls a lot of times at this point, but she's really one of the first, uh, like, quote-unquote, final girls, and I kind of hate that term and that trope a little bit because once people started to write about slasher movies, it's, like, the only thing they have to say. But Black Christmas and Centerfold Girls are the same year, and... She plays this character in the last of the three stories who winds up, I I don't want to give the whole ending away, but winds up kind of being able to hold her own despite all the awful things that have happened to her. And she just, uh, even though she's so gorgeous and could easily be put in these you know, stereotypical roles, she always has such, like, saucy characters. Yeah, she's fucking yeah. tough as nails. Yeah, she and she's got a real wildcat thing. But oh, like... yeah. She's a great villain in the Candy Snatchers. Absolutely. I mean, she was the character I hated the most. Oh, yeah. Until the movie played out, and, and I realize, got to know yeah. the other characters a little better. You but got to meet Sean's mom. <laughs> I got to meet Sean's mom. And... Uh, and she's just, she's terrific. She's terrific in these fucking movies. Totally. She also has this great thing in Bonnie's Kids that I think is a character type pretty unique to exploitation movies where they do these awful things 
And sometimes you think, is this character the antagonist or the villain? And other times it's made clear that, oh, this person is committing this act of violence or getting caught up in this crime because they're just trying to protect someone they love or make their life better. So, and the way that that's so murky is great. For sure. I love Bonnie's kids so much. Her little sister in that steals the show, even though she's like in it half as much. You're a loser. (laughs) (laughs) But um, they both have that like, they feel like Elmore Leonard novels, but yes. that, that yeah. and Candy Snatchers, where yeah. they're just like Elmore Leonard novels, but like for 42nd Street. And the fact this lady played such fucking grimy ass roles with a plum, you know, yeah. with the same way that like guys like Andrew Prine, who just always kind of play these like very intense, nasty characters. She was really great at it. Yeah. Uh, it's a shame she didn't feel that way. She yeah, she uh, she found God. Um, well, oh, she was, she no. was, well, she was, you know, getting heavy into cocaine use. I feel like there's a cocaine threshold where if you do too much of it, you either die and your sinuses collapse or you discover God. Yeah, it's one or the other, it's, really. It's a real shame. Just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, she was so talented and so fun to watch. But it's also kind of neat that like, you just have like those few years of her. Yeah, It's almost like a decade, basically. Right, right. All right, so I have this quote from Tiffany Bowling. I was doing cocaine, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I was very angry about the way that my career had gone in the industry, the opportunities that I had and had not been given. The hardest thing for me, as I look back on it, was I had done the New People TV series, and I had a lot of young people who really respected me and revered me as something of a hero, and I came out with this stupid Candy Snatchers movie. It was a horrendous experience. Poor Tiffany Bowling. Yeah, that, that's her best movie. Well, oh and God. it's also crazy because when you listen to that uh, Gordon Trueblood interview that I brought up earlier, the way that he makes it seem is like everybody enjoyed working together on the set and it was this great collaborative experience where it was like a mix of more established actors like Tiffany Bowling and uh, like uh, Ben Piazza and newer people like that were his friends. Yeah. Like uh, what's his name? Vince Martirano, who plays Eddie, was somebody he apparently knew since college. So it's it always fascinates me to hear very different perspectives of the same production but but this is also after the fact she could have been totally down for it thinking this is going to really launch her career and then looking back you know hindsight's 2020 and she's yeah. like oh that was a bad call yeah but you know if the movie was like a massive hit she'd be like yeah it was the smartest thing i ever did i love that movie i'm really proud of it yes finicky I, like that i definitely think that happens especially among actresses who get cast in these movies and they're just trying so hard to find work but they're not necessarily into cult movies and like you were saying john that she found god yeah. sometimes that guy whispers some really fucking dumb shit in your ear oh, and yeah. it's just like hey just so you know you should be ashamed of what you've done. God you probably sh- has the worst taste in fucking movies. Oh my God. Can he- you imagine Heaven's movie theater? It's just Kevin Sorbo and Mel Gibson. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's worse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least Because at least I could laugh at Oh those. my gosh. And honestly, the best film that you can watch in Heaven 
is probably Forrest Gump, but edited for TV. Oh my god! It's, oh, yeah. it's, it's the Forrest Gump TV cut where they take out the one time that he says like shit or something. Right, right, and, and they right. cut out the part where he says he had to pee or he's got to pee. You know, that's no good for TV. You're just making me think of that great line from Bonnie's Kids when she Tiffany Bowling's character meets this guy who she sort of sweeps into this whole crime plot and. He's obviously taken with how gorgeous she is. And she mentions that she has a kid sister who looks just like her. And he says, wow, I can't believe the Lord made two of you. And she goes, huh, the Lord had nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a good uh, note to leave things for today. Uh, I highly fucking recommend that if you listen to this episode, check these fucking flicks out. Oh, and also, I almost forgot to say, if you want to find out more about them, Stephen Thrower, who is one of the greatest working cult film critics, he's a great guy. Um, he wrote this amazing, gigantic book called Nightmare USA that I once dropped on my foot and sprained my ankle. It is so giant, but it goes into a lot of these movies, especially like Candy Snatchers and... And things like Axe and Kidnapped Coed and that movie I made you watch with the mutant sheep that I oh, love so God much. God Monster of Indian Flats. Yes, I love, yes. It. I love it so much. But his book really goes super in-depth into all of these kind of forgotten Stephen early Thrower? 70s movies. Yes, yeah. Nightmare USA. That's how I found Baby Rosemary. Whoa. Which, well, damn, I got to check this. Oh, I, I've had it's been my Bible since it came, it came out in 2007. Absolutely love it. And in the back, it's like... Oh, here's what's going to come in Nightmare USA Volume 2. Which he's still working on. I, yeah. If he does that thing where, like, you know, like, the sci-fi author that dies before his series is over. He better not. No. It, I'll be very mad. I mean, he took a break to do this giant two-volume Jess Franco Bible. So, it's like, the man works a lot. Yeah, he has, um, I have his Fulci one, Beyond Terror. I think that's what it's called. Yes. Yeah. It's massive. It's, like, yeah. massive. I got uh, one shout out I wanted to do. Our friend Clon uh, Waldrip has been working on the zine for several months. He's got f four issues out now. It's called The Late List. And it's all about video stores and like kind of like very in-depth love letter ode written pieces by a bunch of our friends. Uh, the third issue is really sick. It's all about it's called behind the beaded curtain or something. And it's all about the fucking the dirty adult section in video stores and everyone's <laughs> memories from that. I remember that. Oh, it's so sick. I contributed a piece to the fourth issue. It was kind of like my little love letter ode to my local video store orbit video. And you can follow Klon on Instagram. His name is flea marked like flea market, but with a D instead of a T flea marked. And follow the links in his bio, and you can probably, if it's not fucking sold out, definitely get some copies of the zine. It's also on the Lunch Meat online site. It might be sold out, so I might be selling you a fucking bag of goods here. But if you can get a copy, get a fucking copy. It's great. And my shout-out is uh, this month I was back on the projection booth to discuss uh, Swept Away by the great Lena Vertmuller, who passed away last month. Um, she's incredible. I did an episode on her film, Seven Beauties for the Projection Booth, last year. And it actually brings 
up an interesting sort of final point that we haven't really talked about, which is there's this crazy divide between American exploitation and European art house. And I think a number of critics and film historians over the years have talked about how certain films, because they were made in Europe by these particular directors, are considered edgy art house films. Whereas if they had been made in the United States, they would be called exploitation. And Lena Vertmuller's films are definitely in that bracket. Wow. Oh, that's sick. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's really interesting and also kind of unfair. Oh, yeah. Uh, fucking Sam's got a Patreon, you know? <laughs> yeah, I have a Patreon. Yada, 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 you know. But more importantly, I mean, yes, my Patreon is important to me and to, you know, Charles, who keeps bringing it up. But uh, please follow, like, rate, review our show. Yeah, yes. Reviews. How many how many Patreons do you have now? 69 as of the time of recording this. It might be more when the episode. Hopefully it will be more when the you're episode gonna, comes gonna, out. We're going to lose some followers once they uh... hear me <laughs> laughing about the Jingle Bells sequence in Rame Squad. Oh, boy. All right. All right. See you later, everybody. Night.